they are very, very excited, and I'm always glad. And uh, Parents, I hope you have a great Christmas with your children. Uh, Christmas really is really special with having children. And, um, so let me pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and the time we have in your word. Uh, we are grateful that you have authorized your word for your people. You do work uh, perfectly through your word. Um, the one who speaks is fallible. The one who speaks needs to have all his sin uh, over, 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 overcome and uh, uh, superintended. And, uh, Lord, that you would work through a fallible vessel like me. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we could see uh, the, the depth that you have, you, that you have traveled to, uh, to find us and to deliver us uh, from, from sin. Thank you for the gathered church today. Thank you that you are bringing your word to your people. In the name of Christ, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, Christmas Day, uh, you who are federal workers, uh, you might have seen this list. Uh, Christmas Day is a federal holiday, um, and I find that uh, quite really quite remarkable in the country that we live. That um, this day, which has been designated as a, a day where we celebrate the birth of Christ, I don't think we're one hundred percent sure exactly when Christ was born, what day it was, but this is the day, the twenty fifth of December, that over the many centuries it has been designated to celebrate. And the federal government has designated uh, one of ten holidays, uh, you federal workers out there. Um, and I find that quite remarkable, that our federal government would stop and uh, remember the birth of Christ. This past Wednesday, the federal government stopped by order of our president, and um, there was a Funeral memorial service in the National Cathedral for uh, Bush 41, as he is nicknamed, and uh, our President George Bush. Um, some of you were able to see that. Um, I was able to catch uh, some of it on television. All the dignitaries from the world uh, are there, former presidents, along with their wives in the front row. Quite, quite a scene. The first hymn that was sung was a hymn from the, around 1830 entitled, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And some of the lyric of the hymn, the verses, go, goes like this. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the everlasting King. Praise him for his grace and favor to his people in distress. Praise him still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Alleluia, alleluia, glorious is his faithfulness. Fatherlike, fatherlike he, te- he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. And as, a, as is somewhat typical of some hymns, the hymn writer then turns to angels and says, Angels, help us to adore him. 
You behold him face to face, sun and moon bow down before him, all who dwell in time and space. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise with us the God of grace. Those words were sung in our national cathedral this last Wednesday. Uh, It struck me that uh, presidents uh, of our country, our country that we love, uh, are singing about a king. And they're singing about a tribute that is owed this king. Uh, the, The posture of the heart is to bow down before this king and that this king has been fatherly and he has been tending to us and he has delivered us, he has forgiven us, he has entered into our our sorrow, and he has come uh, in, a, in his perfect timing to rescue us. He has acted toward his people who were in distress. And this hymn writer has been spending time before the very throne of God. Today, in our cultural moment, Really, all we seem to have is politics. Um, it really seems to be that our hope really is in politicians, in the policies of one particular administration or another, uh, the legislation, the laws, power, the power that is invested in uh, a government uh, by the people, as it goes uh, in our founding documents. Politicians live in a very different world than those of the, of the world of praise my soul, the king of heaven. Politicians live in the real world of practical realities. Well, they don't live up in this world of heavenly things that are very abstract and somewhat vague. They live in the world of cold and cruel realities where military policies and domestic policies need to be shaped put together in order to improve and to defend our country. Threats to a national, to a nation's very existence tend to be on the heart of our politicians. The cold and cruel realities of life tend to get their attention. All of us know that um, we've seen over the years when, say, a fairly young president becomes president, say, in their 40s, and just those four years in office turns their hair gray, right? We've all seen the weight of, of what they carry. There was a politician in Israel's history named Ahaz. He was a, a king who was to uphold God's law. He was a king who was to protect the people. Uh, he was a king to be, to, was to be faithful to the covenant that they had with Moses In the early 700s B.C. of Judah, it was was a rough time. Political deals with foreign powers were were underway. The political uh, uh, contrivances, the political agreements um, were not very reliable. And the kings of Israel um, were all corrupt, northern kingdom. There, were no, there was not a single good king in, northern Israel, in northern, the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, there were some good kings, but there were also some evil kings. And Ahaz 
has uh, been managing his situation. Ahaz has been managing his political situation. He is aware that there are some massive countries that could take out Judah. And he's been working some uh, some back-channel deals. Uh, one of the great countries that would come and dominate this this time was Assyria, as I mentioned before the sermon. And um, with the Assyrians, this king Ahaz works a deal. And the king uh, of Assyria was Tiglath-Pileser. Um, and Ahaz sent a messenger to Tiglath-Pileser, and this is recorded for us in 2 Kings 16, verse 7. And the messenger says this to the king of Assyria. Now, this is Ahaz in Isaiah 7. And here's what the messenger says. I, Ahaz, am your servant, the king of Syria, uh, Assyria. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Israel and the king of Syria. So those are those two smaller countries north of Judah. And Ahaz is working a deal with the bigger country, Assyria. And he pledges himself, essentially saying, I will give you Judah as a vassal or a slave state. And Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord, that's the the temple, and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and took it, carrying its people captive and he killed Rezin. Rezin was the, the king of Syria. Now that's Ahaz in Isaiah 7. Now, just by way of that background, it's pretty amazing that God is sending a prophet to Ahaz. God is desiring to enter into a dialogue with Ahaz and has not removed Ahaz from office but it's still speaking to him. I'm just uh, blown away by that. Now, Isaiah has experienced him in his own life a radical vision of God. And this is recorded for us in Isaiah 6. And he is brought uh, to his senses, as it were, about the glory of God. Isaiah is a worshiper of the living God. Isaiah is uh, obedient at some level of what God has prescribed for Israel. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in glory in the heavenly temple, familiar to many of us, Isaiah 6. And Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man that is undone. I am a man of unclean lips. What he means by that phrase is that he means that as he reflects upon the true nature of God, the glory of God, and the holiness of God, 
and the worship that is due God, Isaiah says he repents of his worship. The worship I'm engaged in is falling short of what it ought to do based on the vision I'm seeing. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm just talking, but my heart's not in it. And I am among a people who their heart is not in it as well. Now, what Isaiah believes is that there's just no way to be forgiven this. I mean, this is just not, this just can't be. And Isaiah experiences uh, an angel coming with a coal, uh, burning coal, symbolic of forgiveness, and it touches the place of his sin. And he is then commissioned to be the prophet to Israel and the prophet to Judah. So what God intends to happen in Judah, by way of revival, renewal, what God intends for Judah, he does first through the prophet. It's always good that uh, that in leadership, in a church, and the pastor and the elders, that they're experiencing renewal. It's always good. Uh, and then that God might use that to, to bring about renewal in, in the church. So Isaiah is himself part of the inner workings of the government. He's no doubt some, he has some role already. He is familiar with the inner workings of the government. Now King Ahaz has no regard for the glory of God, the law of God, and he is quite impressed with his own ability to hold things together for this little nation, Judah. The more we know about Ahaz, and I, there are things I'm just not going to tell you about Ahaz, I don't have time, but he is a really troubling king. We would mostly be just blown away that God does not remove him, but yet sends him the great prophet Isaiah. Theologians call this God's condescension. Um, usually we use condescension in a negative way, right, to... Um, it's, you know, it's usually a negative connotation. Condescension theologically means that God is coming to our level in order to uh, speak to mere mortals. Uh, Calvin called the Bible God's baby talk. You know how you talk to a, you know how your your vocabulary changes when you're talking to a little child, right? You use very simple words. Well, this is God's simple words for us. Now, that is his grace to us. He condescends to us in order to communicate to us in a way that we could understand. And God has come in his own personal envoy in Isaiah to speak to Ahaz. And so here it is uh, in verse 10 of Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Here it is. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. No doubt God knows how nervous this man is. No doubt God knows how, how anxious he is. Ask a sign. And then there's no limit to the sign. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the, the underworld, the, the world you can't see, or as high as the heavens. Look at verse 10. All right, let your imagination roll. All right, you want bolts of thunder, you want a uh, bolt of lightning, you want the, the, the heavens to shake, 
Think about it. What would you like as a sign? Now, uh, Ahaz says something that sounds really, really pious here. Look at, uh, look at verse 12. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's actually quoting parts of Deuteronomy and another part of the Torah. Um, Israel put God to the test after God had abundantly shown his, uh, his signs in the Exodus, right? The, the, the traveling out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. God had abundantly provided signs for Israel that he was with them. And then they complained and wanted yet more signs. And they complained about the provisions in the wilderness, and they tested the Lord God. They, they were not satisfied with what he had already done. Right? So Ahaz picks up on this theme and says he realizes that God has abundantly supplied protection for Judah. God is sustaining Judah. God is, there, there's really no need, there really shouldn't be a need for a sign. Or here's another answer. If God does give a sign, and God really does come through, and it's really clear that it is a sign from God, what will, what will I do with my corrupt heart? I don't want to follow God. I'll be put on the spot. Why, if it's really a sign that everybody understands to be from God, well, I'll have to accept it, and I'll have to acknowledge his kingship and his lordship over me. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Why, I wouldn't want to put the Lord to the test. Again, it sounds remarkably spiritual. But he had already been putting the God to the test many, many times. He had already been trying to purchase safety and security through using the, the temple treasury with, uh, with the king of Assyria. And look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. This is the government of Israel. This is the government of Judah, house of David. Is it too little for you to weary is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Meaning you are just toying with God. You're using words that you don't mean. You're just going through the pretense of obedience. And you've been doing this for years, people. And then God announces that if Ahaz will not cooperate with the idea of a sign, he himself will bring a sign. It's a statement that God does not wait for the cooperation of mankind. God does not wait for human nature to cooperate with his program. God has to announce the sign. There will be a sign. There will be the most remarkable sign that God is with his people and that he will bring the great son of David that was always anticipated since God promised one of David's sons would reign on the throne. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It will be understood when this child is born that he is God with us. 
It's interesting that in prior to the birth of Christ, there is the creation of what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there was a growing need to um, take the Hebrew Bible and put it in at least a, another another language because there were so many Jews living away from Israel. And so they translated, these scholars got together and translated the Hebrew into Greek um, a few years before the birth of Christ. And it's interesting that the Greek word that they use for virgin here is what we would think of as a virgin. That is, that this child would be born in a most unusual way. We do know that the early accounts of the Gospels describe that Mary conceived a son by the Holy Spirit. And this is the son who will lead his people. It had always been the hope, ever since the, the kingdom was divided after Solomon, it had been hoped that there would be one of David's sons who would come back and bring back the days of glory. David reigned about 1,000 B.C., and David had many, many faults. But a couple of things David did really, really well. I mentioned this last week. David brought peace to the nation. David expanded the borders. And he served well as king. So David becomes the paradigm of a good king. So whenever there was a king, if it was in the northern kingdom or particularly the southern kingdom, Judah, they were always looking to see whether or not this was one who was like David. The standard was David. Everyone falls short until Mary has a son. And this is why when you're reading your New Testament, the title, the son of David, is very important because this is the hope of Israel, that finally the kingdom would be brought back to glory. The great days of David would come back, the glory days. Some of the prophets described it as, the, in the King James, the latter days. And we often think of those as scary times. Well, in the last days, right, terrible things will happen. Well, mostly when the Bible in the New Testament uses latter days, it's talking about days of glory, days when one of David's sons is over the kingdom again. So it's a very good thing, and it's, it's, it's a time for one of David's sons, the final son, to reign. So what God promises is that this will be one. Look at verse 15. He'll be young, eating curds and honey, verse 15, and he knows how to refuse evil and to choose good. And before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, that, that's, a, that's a prophecy. That's essentially saying, you know those two kings you're worried about? The one in the north, Israel, and the one in Syria? Well, they're going to be gone. And it happens very quickly. In the previous previous uh, couple of verses before our passage here, Isaiah describes them as like uh, smoking stumps. Like when you burn, you burn down an orchard and some of the stumps are just hanging around burning. Well, that's what those kingdoms are like. And in 722 B.C., 
Assyria comes in and whomps on Israel, and they're gone. And God, in fact, even says that in verse 17. This is the first time that Assyria is mentioned uh, in the Bible. Look at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as has not come since the days of Ephraim. That's a previous historical moment in Judah's history. Departed from Judah, God's going to bring the king of, king of Assyria. The very last verse, words of verse 17. Basically what he says there is that Ahaz, for your disobedience, for your refusal to cooperate with God, to, to work with God, to listen to God, The one you've been making a deal with, the one you've been trying to buy off, is going to come in, and he is going to he's going to be a source of God's judgment upon you. And later, there's a king Sennacherib who is the leader of that, and that happens around 701 uh, BC. And Assyria does attack attack Judah, and they're not successful in completely destroying it, but they do attack the very king that. Ahaz made a deal with is going to turn on him. So Ahaz remains silent before the offer of God for a sign, or at least his response is not recorded in Scripture. The reason I would suggest that why he's so silent before Isaiah is because he's still confident in his deal-making. He's managing a tense situation, and he's confident in his plans. As a politician, he just lives in the brutal world of political wheelings and dealings. He never imagines that there's actually the sovereign hand of God at work in history. What God promises us as his people is that he acts decisively, Unlike Ahaz, who seemed to be so insecure in his understanding of of God's presence, God doesn't wait for us to act in a certain way. He acts. We who are indecisive, we who are trying to manage our lives, we who are trying to uh, work a deal with our circumstances, trying hard to manage so much, God acts decisively on our behalf. He does a miracle. He brings the divine son into union with humanity. Ahaz had abundant evidence of God's rescue with his people, and so do I. I have abundant evidence that God has been faithful to me, and I must turn and you must turn to God's faithfulness toward us in giving us the ultimate sign that he is with us. We are like Ahaz, working deals. We manage our lives, we hedge our bets, and God, who is remarkably patient with us, presents to us a sign, the sign that he will be with us, Jesus our Lord. What is it that we're to take away from this passage today? 
First of all, that God doesn't wait for us to get it together. God doesn't wait for us to obey or to understand or to perceive well enough. He and he alone must act. Ultimately, our the Christian faith is a, a faith that is rooted in history. It's not just religious ideas. It's really rooted in history. It's rooted in the nitty-gritty history of politics, as it were. But not the politics that we're used to. Not the politics of slogans and uh, different groups and camps and perspectives on things. This is a politics of the heart. The politics of a king. Politics of a king. And now we are to esteem him and to laud upon him and to acknowledge his goodness. He has come and he has looked at our tragic situation. He has come and he's looked at how we've tried to manage our lives. He's come and he's looked at this, these attempts, these kind of these duct tape attempts at putting together our lives. He's come into the mess of our lives and he's acted decisively, decisively toward you. And he's seen your inconsistencies. He's seen your Ahaz-like heart. And unless he had moved in your heart, you and I would be just like Ahaz, convinced, even if a prophet of God is standing in front of us, saying, give me a sign. You have everything, any option is yours. Unless he changed our hearts, we would weasel out and try to look spiritual all the while, We're working a back deal. That's my heart. So I am am a converted Ahaz. I can't look at Ahaz and then just kind of cross my arm, man, alive, how did, man, alive. Can't, Can't do that. I hope you'll send that message out to coworkers and neighbors that the, one of the many messages of Advent is that God isn't waiting for us to get together. And it's just an announcement. Like you have a baby announcement. And all the rest of us who hear the announcement, uh, we didn't contribute to it. We just listened to the announcement. Just like a birthday announcement, an announcement about an anniversary, right? It's just an announcement. We don't contribute to it. We might attend the party, but we don't make it happen. That's the gospel. The gospel is Isaiah 7.14, behold, a sign. Behold, an announcement. Behold, it's an announcement. It is good news. It is good news proclaimed. It is good news announced. It is not advice. It is not instruction. It is not moral improvement. It is not a pep talk. It is an announcement. Mary had a son and he's the redeemer and he does everything and he will choose the good and he will resist evil and he'll do that for us. We, the inconsistent, we, the rebels, we, those born with a heart like Ahaz. Grace, grace, grace through the announcement that Mary will have a son. Let's pray.
Lord, uh, as uh, there's nothing more decisive, Father, than what you've done in Jesus. So we come, Lord, and we thank you for your remarkable decisiveness. And you've come, Lord, and you have moved in our hearts. And if there is a desire and a, a zeal for you, Lord, you are creating that in our hearts. All praise and glory to you, Lord. We ask that you would indeed make us all hymn writers. Praise him for his grace and favor to his people in distress. Praise him still the same as ever. He's slow to chide and he's swift to bless. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We praise you for your faithfulness. Amen. Amen.